This is the last part. This is the last installment of our most recent um, teaching, teaching series, which is, which is all about inside-out worship, talking about worshiping God from, from our spirit on out, not from the outside in. And we, last, week, um, last week we talked uh, about inside-out worshipers from John chapter 4. This week we're going to go to the Old Testament, and I'm going to talk about uh, the experience of worship. I, I read it on a lot of church websites about, you know, our, our worship experience. I thought, well, what does that really mean? You know, back when I grew up, they called it the worship service. Now they call it the worship experience. And I started, you know, what's the difference between a service and an experience? What's the difference between, because you talk to most Christians about what is worship? They'd say, well, that's the three songs we sing on Sunday morning. And that's such an incomplete answer. And that's such an unhealthy view of worship as if God is content to have 20 minutes of my week and I get the other 167 and however many minutes are left over at the end of that hours to do what I want. That's not that's not true worship. True worship can't be contained in a 20 minute. Second. If you're really in love with somebody, you don't just love them for 20 minutes out of the week. Your whole life revolves around the adoration that you have for the person that you say that you love. So the one question that I asked myself this week that I wanted to explore in the message sounds kind of basic and almost insultingly simple, especially if you know me, because I like to drill down deep into things. But I really got stuck on this one. Why do we worship? Why? Would we be missing anything if we don't? I'm sorry, that's my son interacting with me over here. I hear him saying, I heard daddy, daddy. It's like, that sounds like my son. It is my son. I'll preach right now, buddy. You just chill. You just relax there. Get yourself a little nap. Um, why do, why do we do this? And I wonder if the answer that you're probably thinking along with me, like, seriously, it's a fair question. If someone is sitting next to you and this is their first time at echo, they're already wondering why, why do you sing a couple songs? Well, because we need to fill 30 minutes. We need to warm everybody up before the met. No, 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 no. As if we come into worship to get something for us. Like I need worship to stir my emotions. That's not what worship's about. That's very self-centered. Why do we worship? Well, because God commands it. Well, people have a problem with that statement. Because think about it. If you were outside of Christianity, and a number of us this morning are, it sounds kind of arrogant. So your God demands that you worship him? That's what this is all about. It's all, he's all about just getting your worship. So your God exists to extract something from you for him? I have friends who don't know anything about God but have a problem with that part. Your God demands your worship. That's, very, that's an arrogant God. So why, why, do we, why do we worship? Well, I found this passage in the Old Testament. Now, I'm one of those people, I've done the reading through the Bible several times. So I know I've read this before. But I also have to be honest enough to, you see, to say sometimes when I was reading through the Bible, I was reading just to get the day's assignment done. And it didn't really, I didn't really kind of grab it. I know I've read this before, but it didn't click. Here is a verse and a passage in the book of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, what was Jeremiah's occupation? He was a he was a prophet. Now, prophets in the Old Testament were extremely, extremely important. It was not a job you aspired to have. Many of them were murdered because of what they did. Do you know what a prophet's job was? His job was to hear from God and then speak it out loud to people because this is back before Jesus died on the cross and lived inside people's hearts. 
It's not like you could just go up in your treehouse and the Holy Spirit would just, that's not how it worked. They depended on, on a third party to tell them everything they knew about God. So they either had to read about it or they had to hear it from somebody or God had to speak out loud. That's why you hear him speaking out loud all through the Old Testament. Because he had to. That's his way he had to communicate with people at that point. And so a prophet, he was kind of the middleman. When God had something really great, he wanted all the people to know, he'd tell the prophet. And the prophet would get up and deliver the good news. But guess what if God had bad news? You know where that phrase, don't kill the messenger? You know where that came from? When they killed the messenger. <laughs> Jeremiah happened to be a prophet at a pretty dark time in Israel's history. The people had decided they, they didn't want covenant with God anymore. They wanted to do their own thing. They kind of wanted to make a deal with God. They wanted the blessings of God that he promised, but they didn't want to live a life of obedience. They wanted to do marry who they want, have sex with who they want, drink what they wanted, make their own rules. But they still wanted the blessings. And the, like, like we've changed. Yeah, like we've changed in 2,000 years. Um, so, you know, this is where we take something that was written 3,500 years ago or 2,500 years ago, and it seems like this could have been written today. So Jeremiah has this unenviable task of delivering a message. And in fact, God spoke to him. Some people believe he was as, as young as 12 years old when God called him to be a prophet, and he actually started doing this. But in this passage, he is going to the Israelites probably while there are still smoldering remains of their city being torn down. You know, Jerusalem has been torn down and rebuilt 17 times. 17 times. And he's talking to people in the smoldering remains here pretty much. But he's offering them a message of hope. And there's this amazing little passage in here that I had forgotten was even in the Bible. I'd like to read to you this morning. And then we'll talk about it for just a couple minutes. This is Jeremiah speaking on God's behalf. So it's going to sound in the first person like it's God talking. Just keep in mind, it is pretty much God talking through Jeremiah. He says, they will be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one purpose to worship me forever. Now, Here's this phrase for their own good. For their own good and for the good of all their descendants. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me and they'll never leave me. Wow, there's a lot here. You can get a, a pretty simple answer if, to the question why, and this is not the answer I was expecting to land on. There's probably more than one reason why we should worship God. I'm just going to talk about one this morning from this passage. And it's in here. So I, let me ask you, according to this passage, if you, this was the only place I would let you go this morning to get an answer, and I asked you, why should we worship God? There's, there's a reason in there. Well, what, does the, what does this passage suggest? The reason I should worship God is for what? For my own good and for the good of future descendants. Wow. So the big idea this morning, very simply, is this. One reason, I shouldn't say that the reason, I'm just going to say it this way. The big idea is that one reason the Bible repeatedly encourages us to worship God is for our own good and for the good of future generations. The big idea in your notes, the big idea is that the reason or one reason that the Bible repeatedly encourages us to worship God is because worship is for our own good and for the good of future generations. Now, this is not the answer I was expecting, and I have some trouble with this. Let me talk you through some of my trouble I had with this. I used to think and I thought worship was for God's own good, not for mine. But then I started wondering about this a little bit. Am I going to inform God of anything he does not already know about himself when I worship him? 
So it's not like worship is me coming to God with all this stuff he needs to hear because he doesn't know it about himself. So he's not gaining new information when I worship him. Nor is God this insecure, omnipotent being sitting around in heaven having a bad self-esteem day. Being like, you know, I'm really no good. I'm not powerful. Nobody loves me. And he's waiting for us to give him a pick-me-up in our worship. That makes our God out to be this feeble, insecure God. I've heard people teach from pulpits. We need to worship God and remind him of who he is. No, we don't. Do you have a forgetful God? I hope to God you don't. If you have a God that needs to be reminded of stuff, pick another one. Because yours doesn't cut it. This is the problem all through history. People invented gods, and then when the God couldn't deliver, they just did away with them and invented another one. It wasn't a problem with our God. It was a problem with people. And I would rather, this is a whole different topic, but I would rather you worship God exactly how he is rather than making him into something he isn't and worshiping your image of him. That's idolatry. And a lot of us worship a God of our imagination, not the real God. We've made him into something he isn't. And we worship that. And then we get disappointed when he isn't what we want him to be. The truth of the matter is God is not feeble and insecure. He doesn't need me. God doesn't need my worship. God doesn't need anything. If you have a God that needs stuff, then you have a needy God. And that's, I'm not going to give my life for a God that's needy. Do you understand this? I've heard people preach, God needs this, God needs you to get it. Nuh-uh. God doesn't need anything. I need him. I need him. I don't serve a God who needs anything. So now when we start thinking about worship, I don't worship because God needs it, because he doesn't need anything. He's self-sufficient. I don't worship God because he's insecure and needs to be reminded. So really, what is in it for God? You know what's in it for God is me. And as we unpack this, this will make more sense. Worship really is for my own good, says God. Now, I've heard different people in my life say, you know what, son, this is for your own good. And usually I got beaten or grounded or punished or I had to try a vegetable or something that came right on the heels of that. So I'm already thinking, like, when I read this passage, it's for your own good. I'm like, I heard that line before. That's just the sugar to make the medicine go down usually. What was he really saying? You, what, if, you get, if you play around with the original language here, what you actually get down to is the word benefit. What God's really saying is worship is for your own benefit. Benefit means to add something to. Here's what God's saying. When you worship me, things will be added to you. Now, this gets tricky. Pastor, just last week, you preached this message about how worship is not about me. It's all about God. And now you're telling me that worship is for my own good. So which of those two statements is right? I stand by both statements. Worship isn't all about me. And what I mean by that, this passage doesn't tell us that I come to worship to extract something from God for me. That's when I'm saying it's all about me. Because you have a lot of people who walk away from a worship experience on 20 minutes on Sunday disappointed. You know why? Because they didn't get what they wanted out of it. They didn't like the song. They didn't like the music. The drums were too loud. The drums were too soft. They couldn't read the words. The words were too fast. They're too slow. They're too big. They're in a language they didn't know. They didn't like the way the worship pastor looked or the worship leader looked. Or they didn't like the, the... And we walk away. We're upset and we're mad. We're just like Cain. Cain brings an offering to Jesus that he thinks is really delicious. Brings an offering to God that he thinks is delicious. God doesn't accept it. And he gets mad because he didn't get what he wanted out of that experience. 
That's what I mean when I say worship isn't all about me. Worship is never about me coming to God to say, God, I really need something bad. So as a way to manipulate you to give me what I want, I'll give you some worship. That's not true, sincere spiritual worship that we talked about last week. So I still stand by worship is not about me getting something from God for me. Worship is about me taking something from me and offering it to God. And what God says is that when you worship me that way, I draw near and I inhabit your worship. And the closer I get to you, good things from me begin to be deposited into your life. That's what he's saying. So I stand by both statements. Worship isn't all about me getting anything from God, but it absolutely is for my own good. And you know what? For my little son's good, too. And for his kids and for their kids and for their kids. That's what this means. So if worship really is for my own good. Let's talk about specifically. I'll skip past that. Skip that. Here are three of the ways in which worship can be for our own good. Let me just suggest three ways from Scripture that worship can be for our own good. There's more than this. But here's three that we'll start with. Number one, worship provides a place for me to meet with God. You know what's an even better word than place is location. Worship provides a place or a location for me to, to meet with God. Well, Pastor, where do you come up with that idea? Well, um, uh, the place I try and come up with all my ideas, the Bible. Uh, Psalm, the Psalm, the 22nd Psalm, David writes this, and I, and I broke it out in the KJV, King James Version, um, because it just captures it so beautifully. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Here's what David clues us into. God inhabits to actively live in. Do you know where God resides, he says? In your praises. That's where God lives. So if I want to be close to God, I ought to go to the place where he lives. Where he inhabits. I wanted to get to know Moses and Lauren better. And they invited us over to their home to have dinner. It was fantastic. And I got to know them so much better. But the only way I was going to get to know them better is if we spent some time and we actually spent time where they inhabit. And now we feel that much closer together because we spent time together. The people that you're closest to, I guarantee you, they've been to your house or you've been to theirs. Guarantee it. In fact, you can only get so close to somebody until you visit the place that they inhabit. And there are some people, when you visit the place that they inhabit, you don't want to be close to them anymore. So if I want to be close to God, the Bible gives me a clue as to where I should go. And it says I go to worship. Well, worship's not a place. But in God's eyes, it is. In God's eyes, worship is a place he inhabits. He lives in. It provides a place for me to meet with God. Now, I just spent, um, Julie, I'm going to get ready for that picture. I spent um, some time in Israel recently and it was my first time and i discovered all kinds of things that i didn't know before um and we visited a place called capernaum some of you have heard about capernaum um in your studies of the bible and i discovered something that everybody else kind of glossed over but i was transfixed by this thing Julie's going to put a picture up here um there's a picture etched in some of the rocks that they recovered um we're going to start with this picture. I'm, that's me there with my little earpiece in so that I could understand what the guide was saying when he was 50 feet away and I was back here taking pictures. That is a picture that they recovered at Capernaum um, of a cart that is transporting something. Anybody want to make a venture as to what's on top of that cart? 
That's the Ark of the Covenant, which in the Old Testament was, and you can see it much better there. We'll leave that up for a second. That is, um, the top part would be very familiar to most of us, and that's the Ark of the Covenant, which meant in the Old Testament, what did the Ark of the Covenant represent? In fact, I need to go, it didn't just represent the presence of God, it was the presence of God. It was the tangible, real deal. Now, you need to understand the beautiful thing about Jesus dying on the cross is that the thing that separated human beings from that was torn in half. Which means that when Jesus died on the cross, that didn't have to be in a finite one point anymore that anybody who has a relationship with Jesus now can experience what people in the Bible times just wish that they could see. So leave that up there for a second. What that stone shows us is historical proof that the Israelites didn't just leave the Ark of the Covenant in one place. They built a cart out of uh, whatever they built it out of. You know, I've got builders here, George Valentine and Wayne and others that build things and Chris Carelli that builds things. You've got a cart with wheels on it. You know, and what the guide, who's not a believer, was telling us, he said that's important for us to know because in Capernaum, they couldn't get to Jerusalem to worship too far. So they would gather together in people's homes. And they had a saying in that day that they'd gather together in those homes to worship that a living room was just a living room until the Ark of the Covenant came by. Then it became a sanctuary. And so we, what we get from history here is that we see how that in that present, in that time, they built a cart to be able to move the Ark of the Covenant around and made it all the way to Capernaum so that in, in Capernaum, it, this is not a huge sprawling city. Think about seven acres inside a wall. Some of you have a backyard bigger than Capernaum. This is the place where Jesus walked up and down the streets. He healed everyone. He went to Peter's mother-in-law's house, healed her. Well, it's easy to figure out how they would have known that Jesus was there. It's seven acres big. You know, word traveled fast. But their homes there, we know, were visited by the presence of God. And that's what changed their living room from a small group Bible study, the presence of God. And here's what the guide said to me. He said, because they wanted the presence of God to be portable. I want you to know something. God still wants his presence to be portable. We don't have a cart anymore, but we have our worship. We don't need a cart to carry the Ark of the Covenant around anymore to turn a living room into a sanctuary. Any place where you can worship your God in spirit and in truth, the Bible tells me, becomes a place, becomes a sanctuary for God to come and inhabit. And here's what I'm driving at. You know what makes worship so special is the presence of God. That's the main thing to me. The main thing to me is to be inseparable with my God. And one of the ways we stay attached is through worship. And I will tell you something. The presence of God is for my own good. And when we understand that we are now the cart, we are now the portable carrier of God's presence. Do you understand the value that that gives? Do you understand how valuable the presence of God was to them? Do you understand how they treated the presence of God and how much thought they went into taking? It was so valuable. It's what gave people their value. It's what changed the living room from just being a collection of furniture to being a place for God to meet. And in the New Testament, now we understand the Bible says you're now God's temple. You're now God's building. You, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we worship God, what happens is I become a meeting place. My worship becomes a meeting place for God to come and meet with me. God's always desired his presence to be portable. And worship is a portable meeting space for me to encounter God anytime, anywhere.
And again, I hope if you've been here through this series, and if you haven't been, go back and listen to the previous few parts, beginning with what Pastor Stewart preached in the last week. Worship is so much more than the songs you sing on Sunday morning. If you think the only way you can be this portable meeting space is to close your eyes while you're driving and sing a worship song, a hill song recorded in the last two years, you're missing the boat. When you understand your whole lifestyle can be worship, you will find God encountering you anywhere, any place, anytime when you expect it and when you don't. That's the beauty of living a life of worship rather than a 20-minute segment of your week of worship. If you think you're getting somewhere with God in 20 minutes, imagine what if he got the whole thing. Number two. Here's another thing that, a good thing that comes from worship. And this is, I could preach for six months on this, but I won't. So relax. You didn't have to pack a picnic lunch and break loaves and fishes today. We're good. But worship enables me to experience God. Worship enables me to experience God. And I'll read this passage from 1 Kings in just a second. But I want to ask you a question first. Have you ever tried to share a personal experience with somebody else who hadn't shared that same experience and have them look at you like a deer in headlights to tell them how good your dinner was and they're just looking at you like, yeah. I run into this all the time. I've had this awesome personal experience with whatever. I had this awesome personal experience in Israel and people ask me about the trip and I get all fired up and they just kind of sit there and look at you like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And after a while, you almost feel a little deflated. Like, man, I'm all pumped about this. I'm just looking at you and you're just not feeling it, you know? Or you're like, man, you got to try this restaurant. It was amazing. And they're just like, "Uh Mm uh-huh. And you're almost offended at that. You know why that's so difficult? We've all been there. You've tried to communicate. You've had this experience and it just fires you up. And you're trying to share it with someone and get them to that same point that you are and it doesn't happen. Do you know why it's so difficult to do that? Why it's so difficult to share an experience with someone who hasn't had it? It's because experience can never be secondary. It has to be primary. There's no shortcut or middleman to having an experience. You have to get experience for yourself. I wish I would have learned more from other people's experiences. But dumb old me has to go through it myself all the time. But it's very, very, very difficult. We'll always come up short when we try to describe an experience to someone because we can't fully engage all their senses. Let me take this a little bit deeper. I can tell you a story about my trip to Israel, right? But I'm only engaging one of your senses while I do that, and I'm counting on your imagination and do the rest of the work. I can tell you about my experience because when I had that experience, all my senses were engaged. I could taste it, I could touch it, I could feel it, I could hear it, I could speak it. And that's what makes an experience. An experience is when all five senses are engaged. And when I'm trying to repeat that to you, the best I can do, well, not the best I can do, I can tell you the story and it's just your hearing. And then your imagination has to fill in the blanks. That's why sometimes a picture's a little bit better because I can add hearing and sight. Now you've had a little bit of a closer experience. And that's why we like videos and film clips even more because now you can add sound. But you know what we can't do? I can't bring you there and have you smell it. Have you feel what I was feeling? Unless you go and do it for yourself, there will always be something lacking. And when you explain an experience to somebody, they, they have a, usually they gravitate to one or two reactions. They either say, ooh, I want to have that same experience, or they just say, this just doesn't mean much to me. Like we have people come back from Haiti from our missions trip. Mallory came back all excited, and Sharon came back all excited. I remember Dr. Kelly went, it was the team doctor, Dr. Kelly Gagan went with me. She came back so excited. She's doing, she's talking to school. She was doing um, assembly program. She, she 
uh, was like a guest speaker for one of the school assembly programs and was telling them all about her Haitian experience. And some of the kids were like, I want to go, I want to go. And other people were just like, okay, this is just another thing to hear. Well, if you don't go and have that experience for yourself, you'll never feel that way. So where does that, where does that leave us this morning? Um, you know, and, and, and what does this do for us? You know, the truth of the matter is that experience is multidimensional. You have an encounter with all your senses fully engaged. An experience moves something out of your imagination into your reality and it stamps it into your soul. That's what an experience does. Not everybody wants an experience, so they just want a sample. Well, seriously, like everybody wants to taste and smell crab meat. Not everybody wants to be up to their elbows over a picnic table picking through crabs, right? Some people love the experience and some people are like, I don't want the whole experience. I just want the crab cake, right? Lots of people want to sample God. They don't want to experience him. They want a little sample. I just want to come Sunday morning, once a month, if there's nothing better to do. And I want the message to be right on point. I want to make me laugh or make me cry. I want the worship to be the songs that I like and none of the songs that I don't. I want the coffee to be hot. I want the guest bag to have something new in it so I can fill out that thing again and get the... I want this part of God and that part. I just don't want a full experience. Said everybody who never had an experience with God. If you've had an experience, I don't know a person who's had an experience with God. That said, oh, I, I, God wants to be experienced. He wants you to have an experience. What does that mean? A, an encounter. Where all your senses are fully engaged with him. God wants you to touch him. And he wants to touch you. He wants you to be able to taste of him. He wants you to, he wants you to see him. To feel him. To speak as though it was his words coming out of your mouth. That's the kind of God that we have. And I can stand up here all day and tell you about my experiences. I'd rather you have one for yourself. Well, how does that happen? Happens one of the ways that you have an experience with God. Is through worship. Like, for instance, the Bible talks about all these different things. You know, you can taste God. Don't get weirded out. Taste and see. That the Lord is good. Well, didn't they mean something else? No, they meant taste said David in Psalms 34, 8. You know, you can see the evidence of God. You have an experience with God where you say, here's what David says in Psalm 27. He says, I am confident that I will see God's goodness while I'm still alive. So you can taste God. You can see God, the evidence of God. You know, God wants to touch you. He always has. One Sabbath day, Luke says, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent doubled over for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight, but the story changes. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, dear woman, you're healed of your sickness. Then he touched her and instantly two things happened. She stood straight and it's, the Bible says, oh, how she praised God. I bet she did. Because when God touches you, the result and the response is just more worship and praise. You can touch your God. You can taste your God. You can see your God. You know, you can hear your God too. Hebrews says this. Today, when you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. 
Here's what this means. He doesn't say today if you hear God's voice. He says today when you hear God's voice. This means it is possible for you to hear God. Now, God's never spoken to me audibly, but there's times that I know he's been talking to me. And here's what the Bible says. You have two options when you think you're hearing God. You either soften your heart or you harden your heart. That means if God dealt with you about something six months ago and you resisted him, your heart got harder. And now the next time you heard it, you're not as likely to soften as you were six months ago. This is the warning we get from the Bible. That's what happened with Israel. The longer that they resisted the opportunities and the warning of God to repent of their sin, the harder their heart got. You realize it's possible for you to get your heart so hard that you could be completely living in sin right now and and your conscience doesn't bother you one whit. Isn't that scary? I'm glad that when my hand goes to pick up a hot pot off off of the stove, that there's an impulse of pain and I stop. But you realize that if you work in a kitchen, some of you do this, and you handle hot plates long enough, your fingers and your nerve endings will go numb and you can handle plates that would burn other people because you have no pain sensation anymore. Your spirit and your conscience work the same way. If you can hear God, but you ignore him and you resist him, you'll get to the place where you could be living in something that really should be hurting you and you feel no pain. That's a dangerous place to be. I don't want to be able to set my hand on fire and not feel anything. Some of you are in the medical industry. Your jobs would be ruined if people couldn't feel pain. Because pain's an indication. Usually there's something wrong. But you can hear God when you experience him. Here's a beautiful thing. Peter says, you know, you can, God, you can experience God through your speech. Here's what Peter says. He says, do you have the gift and the ability to speak? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. When I experience God, my language changes. And sometimes you'll start saying things that people be like, man, that's exactly what I needed to hear. And you're looking over your shoulder thinking, where did that even come from? It's because you start spending time around somebody, you talk like them. My buddy Zach came up and went to Israel with me. Zach is from the deep south. And I've worked two years to get rid of my southern twang. And it came back in about two days of spending time with Zach. I started using all kinds of words that don't exist, contractions that are improper. My speaking, I needed an interpreter just to translate my southern into English. Because the more time you spend with someone, the more you start mirroring their speech patterns. When you experience God, you're holy. I have somebody in my life right now that's trying to stop swearing, you know. Let's just be real. There's probably a lot of us in the room that are trying to stop do that, too. But, you know, one of the solutions I said, look, you can, you, can, you know, he's like, you know, I've got a band around my wrist to remind me not to swear. And I've got to do Usually it's too late. You know, you know like, like, I'm glad you got the band on your wrist, but you're not like, hmm, this word's about to come out of my mouth. Let me slow my whole self down and start looking at the band. Oh, I should pick a different word. That's not what happens. The band's just there to make you feel worse after you did it. And you caught, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the cycle continues. I just said, you know, let me just suggest maybe. A, I said, how's that working for you? He said, not real well. I said, well, here's my suggestion. How much time do you spend just shutting down the noise and giving real focused attention to God? He said, I don't really. I said, why don't you try that out for a while? And see how those things start changing. Maybe you need to shut down some of the music for a little while that's filled with some of the things you're not trying to say and maybe turn off the television, which good luck finding any channel where there's anything on there that you shouldn't be saying. And why don't you shut down some of the noise for a little while and let some different, you know, and and it's not like it's rocket science. A couple weeks later, believe it or not, the speech patterns are getting cleaned up. Why? Because it's as though God is speaking through him more than he was before. Because you have a God that wants to be experienced. You have a God 
So what is it like? What's it like to experience God? What's that like? Let me read to you what I have to to speed through this. It took too long. Let me read 1 Kings 19. All I will say is experiencing God is very different than you might think. Here was an experience someone had with God. It's interesting. Elijah, 1 Kings 19, 11 to 13. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told Elijah. Out loud, we assume. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by. And a mighty windstorm hits the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was a huge earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but God was not in the fire. After the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood by the entrance of the cave because that's where the Lord was. See, a lot of us think that if I'm going to experience God, it's going to be a lightning bolt. It's going to be an earthquake. It's going to be a mighty wind. It's going to be the parting of the Red Sea. It is going to be the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. It's going to be the healing at the pool of Bethsaida. It's going to be the, the, the veil ripped in two. And I've had experiences like that with God in my life, but not, but not all the time. In fact, I've had a few experiences like that in my life, but I've had a lot of experiences in God in my life. I missed because they were in the gentle whispers. A lot of us expect that if we really begin to experience God, it's going to be like a nonstop thrill ride of massive panoramic miracles and booming voices. And really, the truth of the matter is that he's as much in the gentle whispers as he is in the parting of the Red Sea and in the earthquakes and the wind. And if you're going to hear the gentle whispers, that means when you experience God, you have to at some point shut down some of the noise. Slow down some of the pace. And focus time and attention on God Almighty because you have a God that doesn't just want you to sample him. You have a God that wants you to experience him. Skipping, skipping, skipping. When's the last time you had a meaningful experience with God Almighty? When's the last time you had an experience with God? A real experience, all senses of you could feel him, hear him, taste him, touch him. When's the last time? Have, have you ever had an experience like that? If you've ever had an experience like that and you have to keep looking over your shoulder back 5, 10, 15, 20 years for your last meaningful experience, you're drifting farther away from him than he wants you to be. You have a God that wants to experience everything that he is and all that he has for you. Finally, number three. So I can use my flip chart. I drug it in here. I got to use it. Those of you that are listening on podcast, you're just really going to have to work your imagination over time here. I'll do the best that I can to make this clear. Um, Worship opens a deeper revelation of God to me. I know this is really churchy language, but there's reasons for these words. Worship, it's another one of the things it's good for. It opens a deeper revelation of God to me. So I just want to make one statement to you. Draw a picture and we'll close. Here's the statement. The only way I can learn anything about God and the way I learn everything about God is through revelation. There's no other way. And I'm going to prove it to you. This is why revelation is important. It's the only way you will learn anything true about God. Let me say it a different way. The only way I can know anything about God is if he chooses to reveal it to me. Now, let me show you why revelation is so important. Some of you don't understand why revelation and this whole idea of revealing stuff is so important. Let me show you why. Here's my little picture. And here's the verse that proves it to us. 
This is one of the most terrifying and wonderful verses in the Bible. It's just really missed. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. This is Jesus speaking. He says, my father has entrusted everything to me. Now listen to this next statement. This should panic you a little bit. Up to the comma. No one truly knows the son except the father and no one truly knows the father except the son. Now stop there for a second. That should panic all of us. Nobody. Nobody truly knows God except Jesus. Nobody. We can't. It's intrinsically impossible. I'll prove it to you in a second. That should terrify us because if nobody knows God, how does anybody get to heaven? You can't come to God unless you know Him. And the Bible says many will come to me on that last day saying, Father, Father, I've done this and that and I've taught and I've preached and done children's church and I've done loading for 37 years. And He's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. If you don't know God, there's no access to heaven. And He says, no one can truly know the Son but the Father. No one truly knows the Father except the Son and one other group of people. And those to whom the Son chooses to what? Reveal. Now watch. I, I hope you can see this. I'll slide this over. So here's, here's what I call the problem. You've got God. God is not finite. God is, what's the opposite of finite? Infinite. Infinite. I don't know why we don't say, that says gop. How about God? <laughs> High level drawing here. You don't want to get this at Echo. According to this verse, you have God who is infinite. And down here you have me. Big head, no hair. I am finite. How much can finite know of infinite? That's why there's this big brick wall here. Because here's what the Bible says. Nobody can know God if you're on this side of finity. You can't. You cannot, says the Bible. Or says any other logical person. You don't even have to believe in God to make this make logical sense. How can I know an infinite God? And in fact, an infinite God is that good at being infinite that if he wanted to, he could make sure nobody knew anything about him ever because he's just that good. He's that powerful. He can do whatever he wants. If he wants to be a secret, he could be because he's powerful enough to do it. He could create everybody and everything and say, there's one way to get to me. You have to know me and I'm blocking all paths. So you're all doomed. That would make him evil. But the, the verse continues on. It says, no one knows. I'm going to put this, whatever this is over here. No one knows the father except who? The son. So I'm just going to use a cross to indicate Jesus. So there's two people on this side of the brick wall that know God exactly as he is. And what makes you and I think that as finite people, we could ever know an infinite exactly as they are? I don't even have words for what's on the other side of here. Do you understand the people in the Bible that got a sneak peek didn't even have colors in their language to describe what they saw? That's why there's so little written about heaven. They don't have language to describe it. That's how infinite it is. Let's not dumb it down. If heaven is just a better version of what you've already got, it's a ripoff. People who saw it said the street, his eyes looked like the color of fire. First of all, they didn't say they were the color of fire. They said that it looked like. They can only use similes and metaphors. And fire is not a color. Do you understand how infinite our God is? We don't even have words to describe it if we could see it. We have no words. But this is also tragic. There's only two people that know what's over here. And here I am, and I want to know God, but I can't get through that fence. I can't get through that wall. 
No one knows the Father except the Son and, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal God too. The only way you can know what's on the other side of the curtain is if the person on the other side of the curtain pulls a little bit back and says, I'll let you see some of this. Otherwise, you and I know nothing about God. Do you understand why revelation is important? It's the only way. There's only two people that know the true answers. Everybody else has just found out about it and wrote about it. There's only two people, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's only two things we know, three things we know on this side that can really tell us the truth about what's on the other side of this. The Bible is God's word to me and it is revelation. Revelation means something that the, reveal means someone who's in the know chooses to disclose a secret. That's what reveal means. There's only a couple people who could possibly reveal. Any preacher who says, I've got a revelation for you, be careful. Because it's not theirs. They didn't get it by themselves. If it's a real revelation, it came from this side of the wall and it came through something that came from God. That's why the Bible is important. Because the Bible is God's word to us. I've got a bookshelf full of all kinds of other books. There's one book on there that's God's revelation to me, and that's his Bible. So why is revelation important? It's the only way you can know for sure that's over here. Do you understand what the Bible says? When we worship God, he comes close to us and he reveals to us things that we could not know otherwise unless he did it himself. Do you want to know what forgiveness feels like? Let God reveal it to you. When's the last time you felt really, really, really forgiven? Do you want to know what love for people you don't like feels like? Let him reveal it to you. You can read 37 books on it and it might help until you have an experience until God reveals it to you personally. You understand why revelation is so important to us. That's how we learn factually firsthand who God is. God wants to reveal himself to you. Read all the stories. Moses went up on the mountain. God revealed himself to it. Moses came down and his face was glowing. He had to put a cloak over it because his face was blinding people. And he wasn't just bald like me. The glory of God so changed his life that everybody around him knew he had been in the presence of God and that God had revealed his glory to Moses. And why do you think God doesn't want to reveal himself to you? God wants to reveal. He wants to pull back the curtain. Nobody's taking him up on the offer. This is an open invitation to you and to me, my friend. You know why he says in Jeremiah, worship me? He says, it's for your good. This is good. If you've ever gotten revelation from God, it's amazing. And it can happen when you're in worship. It can happen when you're worshiping God, reading the word. It can happen when your son crawls up in your lap like my son did a couple nights ago. And he just said, hi, daddy. And he said that to me a million times. But just like that, God revealed something to me. And I, I remember thinking to myself, there's one person in the entire world that can call me daddy. And he just did. That's who I am to him. I'm not Pastor Phil to Chase. I'm not Phil to Chase. I'm not the occupant of 3105 Northland Road. I'm daddy. And I felt God whisper into my spirit, do you know how I love to hear my kids call me daddy? Abba Father. I feel the same way. Revelation. I wasn't looking for it in that moment. 
But when you live a life of worship, God can come and inhabit you all the time and reveal things to him. And simple things become acts of worship. I want you to experience God that way. So when is the last time you experienced your God? Or have you just been sampling him? Have you ever allowed yourself to feel loved unconditionally? Do you know what it's like to feel totally forgiven? Here's the invitation. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And when he draws near to you in your worship, it's for your good. Good things start to happen. He reveals himself to you. He allows you to experience him. Your worship becomes a place for him to get close to you. Well, I have been feeling like I have been worshiping God. And I don't feel close to him. Well, then maybe there's something in your heart you need to get rid of. Because, see, you can't just offer God worship with sin in your heart and have it all work. We can't make that deal with God because he didn't make that deal with us. If you want to worship God in spirit and in truth, we have to let go of our sin. Because just like in the Old Testament, what happened? You know, we saw the cart with the ark. What happened when they tried to touch the ark of the covenant? They dropped dead. Because it was showing that God's presence and sin can't be in the same place at the same time. And if the songs that you sing feel empty and your acts of worship feel distant from God, look inward. Because God's never going to reject an invitation to come close to him, but he can't come close to us when there's sin in our hearts. It's important for us. The more closer that we want God to be to us, the more of our own sin and our own way of doing things, our own way of living life has to kind of fade by the wayside. I will tell you this. When you begin to taste and experience God, there are some foods that when you taste them, you crave them, right? Right, Skylar? Sometimes, you know, I don't, I don't know. I didn't ask if it's dill pickles and ice cream for you or what it is. But you know something? You can't really crave what you've never tasted. You know why some people just look at you with a deer in the headlights when you talk about God's presence? They've never tasted and they don't know. And that's fair. That's why I invite you to take a taste. Take a taste. The difference between God and some of those foods is there's some stuff that no matter how much you crave it, after a while, your belly's going to be full. And if, you know, after the seventh hot dog, it's like, I don't even want to see an eighth one. <laughs> that first one looked great, but the eighth one looks horrible, you know. God's not that way. We don't have the principle of diminishing marginal utility with God, where the more you get of something, the less you want. It's this crazy thing. Like, the more you taste of him, the more you crave. And isn't that the healthiest way for you to stay connected to God? Why do you think that verse in Jeremiah says, I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me, and then they'll never leave me? Because he knows if he can just get you to that first taste of how good that he is, you won't want anything else. But you've got to get to that first place. Let me pray over you this morning. God, we want you. We want you so desperately. In fact, right in your seat, why don't you position yourself right now to have an experience with God in these last couple moments? I want to tell you something. Do you know some of the greatest healings that happened in the Bible happened in the context of worship? Worship creates an atmosphere for the miraculous to happen. Worship invites God to come near to us so that if there is somebody in the house today that needs a healing in their body, they can get it. That if there is somebody here today that needs depression, anxiety broken off of them, they can find it. If there is somebody in the room who's wrestling with guilt in their past or they're wrestling with addictions that sideline and sideswipe their life, they can find it. So that the marriages that are, are, that are hanging together by a fringe this morning can come back together. It happens when we invite God to draw near to us and inhabit our worship. And I do not want to be part of a body of believers that just believes in sampling our God. 
I believe in a God of the Bible that is an everyday God who still is able to heal and deliver and encourage and empower and set free and bless and set on fire people's hearts who are in love with him. But it happens in the context of worship. And there are some of you here this morning that desperately need a breakthrough with God. And we don't worship to get. But I will tell you that if you invite God to come near to you, it is for your good. And I didn't even get to touch on the future generations part this morning. But I know my kids and my grandkids have a vested interest in me worshiping the one true almighty sovereign God. I'm glad that my parents worshiped God. I had never found him. I had enough trouble finding him even though they did. But what about you this morning? What about you? When's the last time you had an experience with God? Have you ever had one? There's one experience that many of us say that we've had, and that's what we call a salvation experience. And if you read through the Bible about how the Bible, the revelation of God, describes what's supposed to happen when we get saved, it's an amazing experience. It says things like all of heaven rejoices. There's a sound in heaven when one person who was lost comes home and begins a relationship with Jesus. In the book of Acts, we read about people who invited Jesus in their life and the Holy Spirit filled them and they felt different. Paul writes, you become a, you go from being an old creation to being a new creation. There's an entire multi-sensory dimensional change in your life when you decide to stop living for you and start following Jesus. And there are some of you here this morning that that's, that's the main event. That's the experience. That's the one that God has available for you that you need, that he knows you need, and that he stands ready to offer you this morning if you'll take him up on it. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never made a commitment to follow him with your own life, you've, you, you've never distanced yourself from the sins of your past, you've never confessed to God, owned up to him for your failures and your mistakes, the things that he's judging in all of us, and said, God, I'm sorry for those things. Here's your opportunity. He stands ready to make you a new creation today. And here's, here's, it, here's what you do. You come to him and sincerely you say to him in your way, God, please forgive me. I've sinned. I've lived life my own way. And I'm sorry. God, I believe you exist. And Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. You lived the life I should have lived. You died the death I should have died. But you didn't stay dead. I believe by faith. I choose to believe that you defeated death, that you rose again, that you're alive, that you are not in fact dead, but you are very much alive. And the voice I hear in my mind right now, what I feel pulsing inside of my heart is not my imagination. It is you and your spirit that you sent to me. And so I just stop playing games and stop running from you. And I stop. I surrender to you. Make me the territory that you come and inhabit. I invite you to live in the very center of who I am. And I make the commitment to follow you and to live life the way that you've commanded me to live life, knowing that it is for my good and for the good of everybody else that will come after.